Welcome to MediaShip Podcast, episode 241, Your Guide to the Digital Media Revolution. I'm Mark Glazer. In the news this week, journalists found that Facebook, Google, and Twitter all allowed them to target ads toward racist groups like Jew haters and black people ruin neighborhoods. The social platforms quickly removed those terms. A new initiative called Report for America aims to place a thousand public service journalists into newsrooms over the next five years. Can a Peace Corps idea help boost local journalism? And the creator of the Pepe the Frog cartoon is taking legal action against alt-right groups for selling merchandise with his image. Our metric of the week is ARPU, and I'll go one-on-one with Justin Hendricks, executive director of the NYC Media Lab, to discuss his upcoming summit next week and a new center focused on virtual and augmented reality. All on this week's MediaShift podcast. Is your life ruled by FOMO, fear of missing out? Check out MediaShift's digital ed online trainings to keep your skills up to date. We have trainings coming up on five tech tools to improve your reporting and how to create a community-centered newsroom. Check them out and sign up today at bit.ly slash digital ed now. That's bit.ly slash digital ed now. Now the big news in digital media this week. First up, social platforms help advertisers target racist groups. It's yet another bad week for the platforms as they come under more scrutiny tied to hate speech. It started with the machine bias team at ProPublica finding out that Facebook allowed advertisers to target users using several anti-Semitic ad categories until that story ran and Facebook pulled them. Then BuzzFeed's Alex Kantrowitz found that Google's AdWords lets advertisers use a variety of racist and anti-Semitic keywords, including black people ruin neighborhoods. Because AdWords is designed to suggest other related keywords, the system offered up other racist keywords as well until the article ran. And Twitter isn't off the hook either. The Daily Beast's Brian Patrick Byrne found that the social network allowed advertisers to submit racist terms as keywords until that story ran. The common theme here? It apparently takes reporters doing searches for racist terms for the tech giants to fix those problems. Maybe they need to hire more editors to help or add more human oversight to the algorithms. The key here is that search terms are automatically generated by what's shared on the platforms. You'd think that after all the public outcry surrounding hate speech on the platforms, that the tech companies would realize this is a landmine they should avoid. As Wired's Issy Lepowski puts it, Facebook may want to be an island but it's an island on which 2.2 billion people live, and it's proven time and again that it's either incapable of or disinterested in anticipating such vulnerabilities. Lepowski rightly suggests that Facebook and other tech companies become more open to outside researchers and create an internal red team that can ferret out these problems. And they better act fast before regulators take action for them. Next up, Report for America brings public service journalism to newsrooms. Do you think when John F. Kennedy asked Americans to serve their country, 
Did he mean they should become reporters? While JFK helped create the Peace Corps, which became the template for programs like AmeriCorps and Teach for America, there's now Report for America, or RFA, a new initiative announced at the Google News Lab Summit. The goal is to place 1,000 journalists in local newsrooms across the United States in the next five years. A key difference between RFA and other programs is the lack of government funding. Instead, the cost of the journalists' salaries will be split by Report for America, the participating newsroom, and local donors. RFA itself has funding from the Knight Foundation, Lenfest Institute, the Galloway Family Foundation, and support from Google News Lab, the Solutions Journalism Network, and the Center for Investigative Reporting. The latter groups will help train reporters in the program. And journalists and newsrooms must both apply to participate. The application process will be competitive, and reporters will need to show they have the skills to make an immediate impact, and newsrooms will need to show that they'll use the reporter to cover important civic topics. As RFA co-founder Stephen Waldman told Pointer, this program will not succeed unless the reporters are doing really good work. It can't just be a nice thing for the reporters to do. Like the other public service programs, the reporter would only be funded for a year of service. After that, the news organization and local funders would have to figure out a way to keep the reporter on the job or risk losing their gains. But one interesting aspect of the program is that reporters will also need to do community service by helping local high schools with student media or convening community meetings around their reporting topics. Report for America is one of many promising efforts to rejuvenate local journalism, so we'll keep an eye on their progress. Finally, Pepe the Frog's creator takes legal action against the alt-right. Can Pepe the Frog be rehabilitated? That's the central question at the heart of Matt Fury's legal action against alt-right figures using his cartoon. Pepe the Frog's character was originally created for Fury's comic book Boys Club, but was killed off this May. Since his creation, Fury's bug-eyed frog has morphed from an innocuous internet meme to a symbol of hate recognized by the Anti-Defamation League, a status which was solidified in last year's election. To combat this perception, Fury's lawyers have been sending out cease and desist letters to alt-right figures such as Mike Cernovich and Baked Alaska, and issuing Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown requests to Amazon and Reddit. And he's had some success as Amazon and Google Play have yanked unauthorized Pepe products from their stores. But as Motherboard's Matthew Galt reported, many of those alt-right figures aren't backing down. They're calling it the Great Meme War 2 and have vowed to fight back, saying they have fair use rights to Pepe's image and that the trademark for the frog had expired. Galt noted that a copyright can be inherent and registered at any time, and it can be enforced selectively. That means Fury can allow use of the frog in less hateful environments, and sue people who use it to spread white supremacist memes. While it would be difficult to pull down all uses of Pepe around the internet, Fury can make it harder for people to profit off the image with shirts, podcasts, and other commercial endeavors. As one of Fury's lawyers told Motherboard, anyone who's using Pepe and profiting off of it should be very concerned. We'll see if any of these cases lead to a courtroom. 
Here's some other stories we're following. The Republican Governors Association quietly launches a propaganda site meant to look like news. Streaming box Roku doubles its IPO target in hopes of raising $252 million. Facebook faces government regulations around the globe. And Univision is trying out WhatsApp to distribute news and information during hurricanes. We'll be back with the Metric of the Week after the break. Join us at MediaShift's 5th Journalism School Hackathon at the University of North Texas near Dallas-Fort Worth. The focus will be on sports and health, and we'll have teams of journalism students, faculty, and professionals from around the country. Learn more at bit.ly slash hackunt. That's bit.ly slash hackunt. Next up is our metric of the week. Each week we'll talk about a metric term or number and try to explain it to you. This time our metric of the week is ARPU, and joining us is our metric shift editor, Jason Alcorn. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Hey Mark, how are you? I'm doing good. So we're talking about ARPU, which is not the nicest sounding term, but it's a financial metric for digital publishing. So Tell us a little bit about what it is and what it means. Yeah, let's get the acronym out of the way first. So ARPU stands for Average Revenue Per User. And ARPU is calculated by revenue, total revenue divided by your active audience over a fixed period, like a month or a year. It's, like you said, it's a, it's a financial metric that businesses of all kinds use to judge their financial health. Frederic Fiu, who has compiled a lot of the information that I'm talking about today in his weekly Monday note, says that the, this average revenue per user, ARPU, should be what he calls a meta indicator. And what it says is it tells you how much a reader brings to the bottom line across all your platforms, across all your lines of businesses. And in digital publishing, of course, that's ads and subscriptions and event ticketing and product sales, affiliate links, all your kinds of business. How much does a revenue, how much does a reader earn for you? And why does it matter? Well, it measures your entire audience. It measures both paying and non-paying users. And if the metric increases, if monetization increases from a, a new product or a pricing change, that means that things with your publishing business are going well. Yeah, so it's, it's obviously a, a, a measure that you want to go up. And so what are some example ARPUs in the digital media space? Well, ARPU is especially important for digital platforms that are ad-supported, where users typically aren't paying directly. We can start with Facebook, which has always made uh, ARPU one of its key metrics in its financial filings. In, its, in the U.S., in its U.S. business, Facebook's ARPU is about $80 annually for each of its users. For Snap, which you know obviously is a, still a less mature business, its ad product is not nearly as refined or nearly as big, its ARPU is about $4. And you can compare that with digital media companies that do have paying subscribers, and you start to see the value of those subscriptions, both historically and, and their potential. You know, it's almost an unfair comparison, but for a company like Comcast, their annual ARPU is almost $1,000. It, it's big compared to digital publishers. Netflix has an annual ARPU of around $100, a little bit more. 
The New York Times has a $20 annual ARPU for all of its users, but if you just take out the piece that's paying subscribers, it's about $140. So its ARPU is actually higher than Netflix when you look at its paying subscribers. A typical weekly newspaper, I've seen an annualized ARPU of $60 to $70, but that's a little bit harder to, to get your hands on that kind of information. Yeah, so how can publishers use this metric to help them out? I'd go back to Frederic Fiu's column this week. He argued that using ARPU as a metric demands that publishers make better business decisions. And one of the examples he gave is that when you have ARPU data, especially for different business units, you can kill the lowest performing products, the lowest performing units, the lowest performing places where you're putting resources with a really good justification for doing so. You know, he says that the news industry you know, doesn't, doesn't make painful decisions often enough or quickly enough. Um, the publishers have a lot of parts of their business that should have been killed long ago in order to, to do more valuable things. ARPU is a, is a shortcut to helping executives and managers identify and make those decisions about where editorial resources should be put. And Mark, you know I do a lot of work with news organizations that are launching membership programs or trying to grow their membership programs. So my takeaway from this is that I'm going to go and use ARPU to compare you know, these big and small organizations, those that cover niche topics, kind of on equal footing using this metric to see what it can tell me about their the true value of their their brand and of their work. Yeah, it's interesting to see something that was a metric in more like e-commerce now become a big part of media. So thanks for explaining that. Sure. Anything to plug this week? Our next uh, training, this is a free training, um, and it's a really good one. Design Thinking, How to Use Innovation to Grow Your Media Business with Rob Montgomery. Uh, space is limited, so folks should sign up at bit.ly slash designthinkrob. That's bit.ly slash designthinkrobb. And sign up for uh, my weekly media metrics roundup at metricshift.org. It comes out every Wednesday morning. Excellent. Well, thanks, Jason. Appreciate you joining us. Always good to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. This one's for the ladies. MediaShift is teaming up with the Reed College of Media at West Virginia University to present another Hack the Gender Gap Women's Hackathon. The theme this year is diversifying AI. With the rise of artificial intelligence, how can we be sure it serves a diverse population? Teams of students, faculty, and professionals will create startups that combine media with AI while bridging an important divide. Learn more at bit.ly slash hackwvu. That's bit.ly slash hackwvu. Our guest this week is Justin Hendricks, Executive Director of NYC Media Lab, consortium of New York City universities and companies focused on media and technology. Before joining NYC Media Lab, Justin served as Vice President of Business Development at The Economist. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks for having me, Mark. The Media Lab launched in 2010, which is about seven years ago. What was the initial idea behind it and how has it evolved over the years? So if you cast your mind back to sort of New York in 2008, 2009, 2010, when this idea was coming along, and we were really in the midst of the financial crisis. And the mayor at that time, Michael Bloomberg, was thinking about the future of the economy and thinking about jobs and thinking about how the various big sectors of the economy in New York were likely to evolve over the next few years. And 
one of the industries he looked at was media. And, you know, of course, he's a, a media and technology entrepreneur himself. Um, yeah, so something it's he cares work. about. Absolutely. So he was able to convene a large number of executives and institutions from across the city and really ask some key questions about how the industry might evolve. That effort resulted in a report, which was called Media NYC 2020. So it was sort of a, a look ahead at how the decade would play out. And it came up with a variety of different uh, recommendations about things the city could do to try to encourage technology and media as industries in New York. And some of those things are just now coming to fruition. Just the uh, launch of the Cornell Tech Campus just happened this week. And, of course, the Media Lab was one of the earlier and smaller, much smaller, of course, than the Cornell Tech effort. But other, other types of initiatives like the uh, Columbia Institute for Data Sciences and Engineering, the NYU Center for Urban Science and Progress, the Media Lab, several others, all came out of the same sort of set of thinking. And that thinking has really... It's evolved, but it's been uh, continued to be supported by uh, the, the administration under under uh, Mayor de Blasio. And so we've been at it for about seven years now. Yeah. And so tell me about how the lab works. You're supported by member companies, so they pay kind of a membership fee every year. Is that is that your main support? The lab was started by the New York City Economic Development Corporation, which you know encourages, of course, economic development across a, a broad variety of sectors in the city. And the original idea, which is very much the kind of business model we currently have, was that the lab would uh, start with a bit of funding uh, that essentially the EDC managed to uh, bring in through Time Warner Cable and would eventually have its own sort of business model, so a kind of service blueprint that offered services and you know, R&D activities to media and communications and technology companies and under a membership model. And so that's exactly how we operate. So we have members uh, across a, a kind of a, you know, tiers of membership, as you might expect, some who are minimally involved, some who are doing regularly, annually R&D projects with us, and some that are, you know, quite strategic and doing a large number of projects with us each year. And so what is the role from the city of New York? Do they, are they still funding you? Are they still involved in some way? So the city still funds some of our programs. In particular, we have a accelerator program that we operate called NYC Media Lab Combine. Um, and that program, the grants that we provide um, to early stage startup teams, that money comes from the, from the city, from the mayor's office of media and entertainment. Um, but our operating budget is essentially paid for entirely by uh, corporate membership. And how does that combine work? So you're giving money to kind of, is it startup projects? And does the city or does the lab take any kind of stake in those companies? So it's a really great deal for startup entrepreneurs who are emerging out of the New York City universities because we don't take a stake. Uh, it is a grant that we give them and a program that focuses on helping them to commercialize their idea, to commercialize their technology. About to enter its third year, it's been a, an enormous amount of fun. This week, I just talked to a, one of our companies earlier today that just wrapped up a, a seed, seed round. Uh, so we're starting to see those types of you know, results come back where some of the teams that we've put through the program are beginning to spread their wings, beginning to grow. And you know, the Combine, it, it's, a, it's a three month, pretty brutal accelerator program. Uh, we take teams from across the city, schools that are focused on, 
you know, applications of technology and media, and we help them to, to put some bones around their idea, help them to, to validate it. And what's great is that the Media Labs member companies serve as mentors and uh, sometimes as customers. Wow, that's interesting. And so the people who are applying, they have to come from the universities in, in, in New York? So they do have to come, uh, have some connection to New York City universities. And most of the time, what, what, what we're seeing are, you know, are faculty or graduate students, people who have been working on some type of project, uh, either in their lab or on a capstone or a thesis project. Um, so a lot of the time, that's what, what ends up being the kind of core of an application. It's, uh, it's something they've invented, a prototype or an idea, and we help them to kind of advance it through to that first minimum viable product. Yeah, and so tell me about some of the more successful projects. What have they kind of come out with and how they've been working with media companies? Well, I'll give you, um, so it's interesting. The startups are all using emerging media technology. Not all yeah. of them are, are applying that in the media industry. Sometimes they're, they're working in other industries. So that's one thing I should, should make clear. But just in the last um, couple of years, we've had teams that have really, you know, fallen in that, say, two themes or two categories. One is applications of, of data science in the media, so machine learning and computer vision, AI. And then the other is uh, augmented and virtual reality. So one of the good examples of that, that data theme is a company called VidRover. They came out of Columbia University, out of a man named Shifu Chang's lab. And what they do is extract information out of video. So they've created a, a variety of different software tools that can essentially teach a computer to watch, watch video and extract information about the, the individuals, the scenes, the, the language used, the objects, all the rest of that, and, and quickly make that very usable. And so what that creates is a lot of different opportunities to do automatic clipping, to you know search content, to do various functions on that content, and so that's a very valuable tool for, for media makers. Another example, we have a team that just came out of NYU, out of uh, Courant, the uh, computer science program here at NYU, and uh -huh. they uh, were focused on creating 3D models of the world automatically. So what they do is ingest uh, large amounts of data, satellite imagery, uh, maps, uh, photos, scan information, and they can automatically generate 3D models of cities. And that has a variety of different applications. You can imagine in gaming, in architecture and urban development, uh, just in a wide range. So those are two examples in the data category. And then in the, in the VR category, we've seen teams that have really been emerging thinking about applications of AR and VR. One team, for instance, called Aculus that was looking at augmented reality and how that could be used on construction sites, how to bring building information into the hands of workers on site to give them 3D models and guidance on their job. Um, and another team I mentioned, Street Smarts VR, which is building simulations for police in virtual reality. So they believe that they can really change the way police are trained and the way that they, the amount of opportunity they have to access training content uh, using virtual reality. That's pretty fascinating. And let's talk a little bit more about, you definitely put more effort around kind of virtual reality, augmented reality, and there's this new effort by New York City. They're putting $6 million into kind of a new VR, AR hub at NYU. What role will the Media Lab play in that? We're very excited about this because the new VR, AR center 
which we'll build um, in the next uh, several months, is really going to kind of build on the the model of the Media Lab, build on this you know interaction between industry, between entrepreneurship, and the universities. And so it really represents a, a partnership between the city and its institutions of higher education, quite like the Media Lab. So a variety of universities are involved, including the Media Lab's founding partners, the Tandon School of Engineering at NYU, which will administer the program as it does the Media Lab, as well as Columbia University, which is one of the founding members of the Media Lab and has a, you know just an immense amount of wealth when it comes to VR and AR. Also CUNY and the New School, uh, in particular at CUNY, we're working with a program at Lehman College that is developing workforce training programs in virtual reality. And we'll work very closely with them to expand that programming and try to create opportunities for uh, people to, to you know, uh, fill these new jobs that we believe are going to be created by this industry. So the center itself will have four big program areas. One, of course, is going to be venture and uh, kind of new business development. So we'll we'll do our absolute best to launch as many startup companies as possible. Uh, the city has uh, some pretty aggressive goals in that regard and uh, wants to see us uh, you know, drive startup formation and create some jobs. And then we'll work with companies, of course, on uh, kind of innovation programs looking at you know, possible new products and services that large corporations might be able to offer, helping them to connect with talent and technology and new ideas. We'll also run education programs, including professional and workforce training programs, but also uh, technical or sort of more strategic executive programs. And then the other big thing we're going to do is community and outreach and try to make sure that as many New Yorkers as possible get a chance to see these technologies, play with them, learn what's possible with them. So a lot of media companies and the media industry at large have been a little obsessed when it comes to VR and AR. uh, Do you think the public at large has been less than enthralled about it? I mean, what do you think might be a breakthrough in that area for for the public? Minutes before I I was in a lab at uh, NYU's ITP program, and I was seeing a piece of software that's been invented by uh, a team that is has formed a startup out of NYU that is doing multi-user VR experiences. And so I went into this VR world that they had created, and I was there with two other individuals, one of whom was physically actually over in Abu Dhabi and another person in, in the Netherlands and someone in the Bronx. And we interacted. We Together, we went around the space. We went from place to place. We had conversation. And it just occurred to me that while I was doing that, that I'm one of the very few people in the world yet who have had the opportunity to experience multi-user virtual reality experiences. And to me, I I don't know if I quite sort of believed in VR until I had the chance to to do that and to do similar things. I do think that we're going to find each other very compelling in virtual experiences. And when multi-user, you know, or multi player, if you will, kind of experiences become more common, I think you're going to see lots of types of applications that we haven't yet imagined. And those things will appeal to large numbers of people. You know, when that happens, and I I don't want to, you know, make a prediction because I'm sure I'll be proved wrong, but I'm certain (laughs) that it will. AR, I think, is, you know, probably a completely different beast. And so, you know, there's a a different kind of answer there, I think. But, But certainly VR, to me, it's really on the cusp. And I know that there have been a few headlines this year that have been uh, you know, less than positive about virtual reality, and some companies have been a little skittish about it. Um, but I do think over the next 18 months to two years, we're going to see some pretty extraordinary things get built. 
It's interesting that you don't get support from the, the tech companies like Google and Facebook. Why, why is that? Well, I think increasingly we're working with the tech companies. We do work very closely with Verizon, which provides a uh, you know a bunch of, of platform technologies to media companies, and in particular the Connected Futures program that we work with on with them is designed in part to give people access to some of their tools, like their their environment platform for VR or their things based platform for for IoT. So we do you know work very closely with them, and over the last bit we've increasingly been working and and involving. Uh, executives from different tech companies in our events and programming. We've got executives next week at uh, our summit coming up from, you know, Alphabet companies like Intersection, from Samsung, uh, you know, from a variety of different other other players. So, you know, we're doing we're doing our best there. So tell me a little bit more about you've got your summit coming up and that's next week at the new school. Um, tell me about the focus of this one and how it's maybe different from previous summits. You know, I think one of the things that has really become clear to us is that there are two main themes that are driving change in media. And, and those are, as I said earlier, you know, really data, applications of data science and media um, and virtual and augmented reality. And so those are the two themes that you'll see expressed at the event. And I think we're going to look at those um, those technologies through a couple of different lenses. You know, both uh, the opportunity and then some of the the challenges that those those technologies represent. So, you know, with uh, with one of the keynotes, we'll we'll be looking at a little bit at the intersection of technology and media and democracy. Sort of thinking about, you know, in particular in the in the environment we're in right now, how technologies that are allowing us to to create automatically, you know, automatically generate content, automatically generate text and video and audio, how those technologies might be used both for good and for potentially evil. With AI and with AR, we'll be looking at, you know, how that's going to change the way we live in cities and, you know, what that will mean for us in urban environments. So I think one of the things we're going to try to do is is both look at the, the kind of the promise and the, the peril of these technologies, look at you know, the opportunities they create, and think critically about you know the challenges they present as well. Well, there's definitely been a lot of challenges lately, as we've seen with all the kind of weird stuff popping up with you know these ads or you know ads being served towards racist audiences and just the way they've been trying to deal with hate speech. And so it's true that there is an amazing amount that you can get from automated, you know, algorithmic content, but there's also obviously (laughs) problems as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think we can do here in New York is really think through some of those questions and think through, you know, what what some of these technologies mean. And and hopefully, you know, the Media Labs Summit next week will be one of the places where those types of discussions can happen. I'm excited about it for a lot of different reasons, but the biggest reason is because we have 150 demos from students and faculty from across the city. And one of the things that you always get from that is a sense of, you know, what people are curious about and what's really recently possible with very few resources. So people just invent all kinds of things and put them on display. And you always walk away sort of with a sense of, you know, what the trends are, what's going to happen next. Well, you're working with all these, you know, really big universities, and I'm sure they're somewhat competitive. Does that ever become an issue where, you know, one university wants to do something over the others? Or how, how do you kind of work with so many of them? 
you know, I'm very lucky because I, I have a board and, you know, really participation from across the universities that um, I think sees the, the, the civic value in, in what we're doing in the fact that, you know, New York, it's a, it's a big city. There's a lot going on here. There's an enormous amount of expertise around media and technology uh, in our universities and in our industry. And, you know, we don't, I wouldn't say we tend to deal too much with competitive issues. You know, I, my issues normally are really ones of there being such a surfeit of choice of people to work with. You know, we try to create application processes and things of that nature that let us hone in on which projects we can service the best. Because I do think that, you know, there, there, there is just so much. I'm constantly knocking on a, a new lab door and finding, you know, someone brilliant behind it who's working on something that I hadn't imagined they'd be working on. So pretty cool. It sounds like it. Do you think, I mean, New York obviously is a unique place, especially in media, but do you think other cities can replicate some of what you've accomplished there? We have been approached by representatives in other cities about the model that we've created. And I do think there, there are a few cities in the world where uh, what we're doing is possible in terms of the consortium, the multi-university, multi-company consortium we've created. I'd be interested to, to, to help you know, any city that wanted to do something like that. It might be nice to have a collaborator that had a similar structure you know, elsewhere. I, you know what we're doing as far as having a uh, a consortium is not a new idea. Of course, MIT Media Lab, you know, has yeah. has a membership. Stanford X and other programs have have membership kind of proposition and not too dissimilar from what we're doing. Uh, Carnegie Mellon has you know enormous amount of industry activity around it. So you know there are others. New York just happens to have an incredible density. Of, of both industry and universities in the same place. And I think that makes it a bit peculiar. And wait, tell me a little bit about being in Brooklyn, because that's where your lab is located. And, you know, I guess traditionally we would think of like Manhattan, this is the place where all the big media companies are. But what, what's it like being, being in Brooklyn? You know, it's really interesting you say that because even that has changed over the last few years. I and mean, we've seen companies like at Time Inc. that have moved significant operations to Brooklyn. You got agencies like Huge, which are you know kind of born there and still headquartered there. You've got you know even companies like you know A Plus E Networks, which has a, a a brand studio, I think in Crown Heights. So you know there there are quite a lot of of activities. Of course, and of course there's Vice Media, which you know may be the biggest media company in Brooklyn. I think their their recent valuation probably sealed the deal on that one. You know, so so things have changed quite a lot. The, uh, the Kings County is not doing too poorly when it comes to, to media, and we have been, uh, you know, very much in, you know, nestled in downtown Brooklyn. Our home is at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering, and it's been exciting to see how it's changed. It, if you've come to downtown Brooklyn lately, you you've seen the cranes on the skyline and just the incredible amount of building that's going on. You know, I've been there now for five years and I've never seen uh, such an just rapid, rapid urban development. So it's been pretty exciting. And I think industry has, has followed. Well, thanks a lot for joining us on the show and good luck with, with the summit next week. Mark, I hope you can, I hope you can come and join us. Thanks for joining us for the MediaShip podcast. A big shout out to our special guests, Justin Hendricks, Jason Alcorn, 
our producer Jefferson Yen, and associate editor Bianca Fortas. Check out the latest news and features at mediashift.org and follow us at MediaShiftPod on Twitter. Our past episodes are on SoundCloud, and if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. We'll catch you next week.